0: Hi, I'm Josh van Buerkle. Welcome to the Activate Christchurch podcast. It's our privilege to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you ever find yourself in Christchurch, pop in and say hello. We'd love to see you. All right. Well, if if you're a guest with us this morning, we are working through a series on obedience. And so Jared spoke last Sunday and he talked about the three obstacles often that we face when it comes to obeying God. Who can remember what one of them was? We broke into groups. Aleah? Pride, selfishness, yeah, so I don't obey God because I don't want to, because I want what I want in my life, and I want this, and I want that, and God says, give money to that person, and I want that money, it's mine, right, selfishness, so God says, give time to this person, and I want that time, or whatever, Abel, you look like you're developing a headache, you're trying to remember what they were, weren't they, yeah, Abel's on the front row just like,
1: ah, ah, ah,
0: what is it, right, so selfishness was one, what was another one, Clarity, that's right, or probably ignorance is a better way of putting it. Jared did use the word clarity, but one of the reasons we don't obey God is because we're just ignorant to what God is asking us to do. It's not that we're willfully disobedient, it's just that we miss the mark because we're not listening, we're not paying attention, and so God is saying, do this, do that, do this, do that, and we're disobedient to it, but we're not even aware of it. There was another one, and then there's one more, fear. Who related to the fear one a lot? Right, that, that's, that's one of the big ones that I have to deal with. When I'm in the front row and God says, hey, get everybody up and, and pray for my spirit to come, I'm like, yeah, but what if it doesn't? Or So when I get up here, like, if you're a crier and you just start loudly crying, that helps me so much up the front because it just makes everybody feel like, oh, God's doing something, which is awesome. And I'm, I'm always like, oh, in, in my picture, I'll, in my mind, I, I can often tell when it's God because I see it. And so I saw everybody up here, and I'm like, that's God. And then I saw myself being like, you know, full God. And then my imagination took over, and everyone was like, <laughs> falling out. I was like, okay, that's, I hope that's God, but it's probably me. But that, that would be awesome, right? Like if everyone just like KO'd, maybe, maybe we'll work up to it. I don't know. So fear, and then there was, there was a fourth one, which Jared didn't talk about, but I would have if I were preaching, because it's a big one for me. Things, reasons that I don't obey God is laziness, Right? Get out, of, get out of bed and read your Bible every morning at six o'clock. I could, but it's warm in here. So, so, so laziness is one of the reasons that I uh, don't obey God as well. So fear, laziness, ignorance, and, and selfishness is what we talked about last Sunday. I want to talk about this morning, and, and obviously with what happened here this morning, it'll lead into it nicely. Um, I just want to share two stories from the Bible, and then I want to play a four-minute video clip from a man called John Wimber. And I'm just going to, I want to look at the mindset behind these two stories, what people believe in these two stories, and then I want to watch this video, and we're just going to ask the question of ourselves and of us as a church, what do we believe? Is that cool? All right, so the first story, you can find it in Mark chapter 2. If you got your Bibles, open it up to Mark chapter two. I've got no slides for you this morning, so you're just gonna have to trust that I'm actually reading what's written here. In Mark chapter two it says this A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Now, I was I was learning about Jesus a little bit this week, and I've heard this many times before, but I've never really stopped and thought about it. You know, Jesus was thirty years old when he started the ministry, and this is right at the start, Mark chapter two. So he's about thirty. How old are you, Abel? 31. Do you want to stand up, everybody? Come on, stand up. Come up here. This is Jesus. <laughs> right? So when you, when you picture Jesus in the Bible, or you watch Jesus movies and stuff, how many people picture Jesus like Abel's age? Look at this little punk. <laughs> right? And you think that's bad. Stay here. Because the disciples were even younger. Right? The disciples, there's 12 of them. And basically, the general consensus widely held is that the vast majority were teenagers. Because in the Jewish culture, if you weren't married by the time you were 18, there's something wrong with you, right? 18 is when you were married off. And of the 12 disciples, how many were married? One. And his name was... Peter. So people everywhere kind of go, well, most of the disciples must have been around 16, 17, stay there, around 16, 17 years old. And Peter was probably the oldest. But when we find Peter in the Bible, he's working with his brother, Andrew, he's hanging out with James and John, who he's in a business with, and they were all unmarried. To. He was probably just a couple of years old. It's so like maybe 20. How old are you, Josh? 23. How old are you, Nathan? All right, get up here, Nathan. All right, just, just go like a visual picture, right? Up here. Come on. So, so Abel's Jesus. This guy's Peter. Right? I'm, I don't think we've got anyone younger than 22 in here. Well, Ioana, but yeah. Okay, you can be Peter's wife. Come up here. No, that's weird. That's weird. Sorry. I, forgot. I, I, should, have, I should have picked Josh because they're engaged. That's right. I didn't think that through. When you, so just when you read the Bible and you're reading about Jesus and you're reading about the disciples, we're talking about a youth group. Like, I'm not even joking. Like, everyone's 15, 16, 17. Jesus is this guy. You guys can sit down. Just when you are reading through the Gospels, just bear that in mind, because it's weird when you start reading what Jesus is doing and what the disciples are doing, and you're like, these guys are kids. They're teenagers, right? And so Mark, it wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but he often hung around with Jesus and the crew. Uh, And there's a story in one of the Gospels when the Pharisees come to arrest Jesus and there's a bit of a ruckus and the disciples scatter. And one of the gospel accounts records a young guy who was wearing basically not much at all, like a linen cloak. And it got grabbed off him and he ended up sprinting away naked. And the general sort of rabbinical view of church history is that that guy was Mark. Mark. Just this little wee kid. And so he was probably even younger again than the disciples. But anyway, I just think that's interesting. Sometimes you read the Bible and you don't take the time to stop and go, what was this really like? It was a 30-year-old dude and a bunch of teenage boys traipsing around the desert, hanging out and just doing crazy stuff. So Jesus comes to Capernaum. It says, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Who's heard this story before? Right, a lot of you. Okay. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And if you read the rest of the story, there's a bit of a tater tape between Jesus and the Pharisees. You've got their knickers in a twist. And the story ends with Jesus not only forgiving this man, but healing him. He gets up in front of everybody, picks up his mat, and he walks out. I want to ask you this question. Again, just thinking practically around the story, this is a story that actually happened. So what's the background of this? Jesus arrives in Capernaum and these four guys hear about Jesus is there. They must be really good friends with this one person who's paralyzed. I was thinking about it this week. I was like, well, we don't know the background of this guy, the story of this guy, but I can't help but think that maybe there was a crew of them, like five of them, and this guy's had some sort of accident. Like he's, he was part of the crew, and now he's paralyzed, because these four friends are incredibly tight with him. And so when they hear that Jesus is in town, they go around to their mate's house, and they say, hey, we're going to take you to this guy, Jesus, and he's going, to, he's going to heal you. He's going to do something crazy. And they pick him up, and they have to carry him on his mat all the way there. Have you ever had to carry someone on a bed? That's awkward. How on earth did they get him on the roof? Have you ever thought about that? Like if I said to you, hey, right now, let's go outside, climb up on the roof. I like, mean, I can't even get myself on the roof. How, how do you get yourself on the roof, plus three of your friends, and then a paralyzed guy, like, that must have been very weird to watch for everybody outside the house. And then they get on the roof. Now, fortunately, it's not, you know, they're not having to deal with color steel. It's probably more like, you know, that's roof cottages Sorry. It's a, <laughs> as a pop culture reference from, like, the early 2000s, right? Truck door. Only, only Jesus got it. Um, <laughs> but they get up there, and they're, so they're pulling the roof apart, and That's not something you can do on the down low. Like, everybody in the house would have been, they would have heard, like, you can't have four guys on your roof pulling up a paralyzed guy and not hear that there's something happening up there. We've got color steel at our house, and every time a sparrow lands on our roof, it sounds like a dinosaur is running across the top. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Right? But these five guys are up there. They start digging a hole in the ceiling, and so there's like... Dirt falling down, dust falling down, straw falling down. People are in there going, "What is going on up there?" Eventually, there's a burst of sunlight, as a hole is made, and a hand comes through, and it just starts ripping more stuff. And there's another hand that comes through, and then there's another pair of hands, and soon there's eight, and they're just clawing away at the ceiling. And they had to make a big hole because they had to lower someone through it horizontally. That's a big hole. And and you can't tell me that it's no point in that process where people in the room not aware of it. Like someone starts ripping a hole in this ceiling, we what, we all we all lose focus on Josh's preaching. And so they lower this guy down, and the Bible says that when Jesus saw their faith, you know, he said, "Hey, your sins are forgiven," and he healed the guy. Now here's my question: What did those four people believe about Jesus to do what they did? Any thoughts? Feel free to chuck them out. Linda, you're nice and loud now. <laughs> right? What? 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 Did just let's just use our brains. What did they believe about Jesus to do what they did? What would make someone carry their paralyzed friend to a house, haul them up onto a roof, dig a hole in the roof, and then lower them down to Jesus? What did they believe about him? They believed. Who, who thinks that they believed their friend was going to be healed? All right, totally. Like, you can't look at that story and believe anything other than they knew if we could just get this guy in front of Jesus, he'll heal him. If we can just give Jesus the opportunity to move, he will move. And so their belief around that moved them to do what they did. In other words, you can tell what they believed by what they did. Their actions communicated what they believed about who Jesus was. We can understand that. Right now, let's, let's skip forward to another chapter of Mark. So that was Mark chapter two. Mark chapter three, Jesus keeps doing some awesome stuff. Mark chapter four, he does some awesome stuff. Mark chapter five, he's still doing awesome stuff. And then in Mark chapter six, he leaves Capernaum and he goes back to a town called Nazareth, which is where he was brought up. You remember the story? He was born in Bethlehem because his parents had to go there for the census. And then while he was in Bethlehem, uh, his dad, Joseph, got warned in a dream that it wasn't safe. Because Herod was out to kill him. And so they relocated to Egypt. Now, fortunately, they had just had three cool guys show up and just unload a whole bunch of frankincense and myrrh and gold. I don't know if you ever thought about this, which funded their expedition to Egypt, because now they had everything they needed. They go to Egypt for a while, and then an angel appears to Joseph again and says, Hey, here it's dead. You can come back to Israel. And they came back and settled in Nazareth, and that's where they uh, grew up, where Jesus grew up. And so it says here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus left Capernaum, went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. Where's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? And then the penny drops and they go, wait a minute, we know this guy. This is, this is Jesus. Yeah, 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 he grew up in this town. We remember him. They say in verse three, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters right here with us? And they took offense at him. Skip down to verse 5. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them, and he was amazed at their lack of faith. Mark chapter 2, he's speaking to paralyzed men and they're getting up and carrying their mats out of buildings. Mark chapter 6, he can't do anything except pray for a few sick people. Now, the question that often people ask is what does that mean when it says Jesus couldn't do any miracles there? Does that mean that he prayed for people and it didn't work? I don't think it means that at all, actually, because in no other account in all of the gospel records will you find a single instance where Jesus was unsuccessful in his attempts to heal someone. I believe that every single time Jesus exerted his authority over the powers of darkness, he was successful. There's no record of Jesus ever praying for someone who wasn't healed, ever delivering someone that wasn't set free, ever laying his hands on someone that wasn't miraculously touched. No record of that anywhere. It's just this one verse. But when you read it in context and you read how people felt about Jesus and what their attitude was towards Jesus, I think what it means is that he didn't do any miracles there because no one was prepared to give him the opportunity to. They said, we know this guy. We know his dad. We know his mum. We know his brothers. His sisters are right here. And so instead of having a house filled with people And then people outside the house and people coming to the house and cutting holes in the roof and lowering sick people down, everyone in his hometown just went, eh, I don't really believe that. Same question, what did the people in his hometown believe about Jesus to make them act the way that they acted? They didn't believe that Jesus could heal. They were offended that he would even show up claiming to do what he claimed to do. And so it's not that, don't, don't ever think that Jesus was praying for people and believing for God to move and it just wasn't happening. I think it was just a case of maybe half a dozen desperate people showed up and he prayed for, then the Bible says he prayed for a few sick people and they got well. The ones that he did pray for got healed, but there wasn't a big move of God. There wasn't a huge group of people that showed up. There wasn't a big event, nothing like that, because everyone just went, no, we're not, we're not gonna do that. So on the one hand, You have Jesus doing extraordinary stuff because people had faith that he could do extraordinary stuff and their faith led them to act in a way that gave Jesus the opportunity to do what he could do. Does that make sense? And then in the second instance, Jesus isn't doing anything because the people that he is with do not have that faith and because they don't have the faith, they're not giving him the opportunity to move and so we don't see any miracles happening there apart from a few sick people getting well. It's the same Jesus... It's the same power, but two completely different scenarios based on the opportunities that were presented to him. And so I've been asking this question a lot. Is as a church, are we a Mark chapter 2 church or a Mark chapter 6 church? Are we a church that cuts holes in ceilings and lowers our friends down because we know that if we can just get a sick person in front of Jesus, he'll heal them? Or are we a Mark chapter six church that doesn't really put our hands up when someone says, hey, who needs prayer? Maybe once every four or five Sundays, we might do like a kind of like, hey, who wants some healing stuff? But other than that, we're not given, Does, do you, know, you guys know what I mean? Like a lot of this you're hearing not fully processed because I'm still working through it. But what I wanna do now is we've got that video Tibor. Uh, so John Wimber this is a very famous I came, man. Uh,
1: to Christ, I came to Christ. Not
0: yet. With... <sighs> he is the founder of the Vineyard movement, and we might hear a little bit more from him in a few weeks' time because he's got some pretty amazing stories about the journey that he went on, but essentially he was brought up or became a Christian in a church that was a cessationist church. Do you guys know what a cessationist church is or what cessationism means? Cessationists believe that Jesus had the power to heal people because he was meant to prove his divinity through miracles. But it's not appropriate for us to heal people. That's what cessationists believe. Cessationists believe that the first century church, the apostles and the disciples were also in uh, God's grace granted the ability to heal people in order to launch the church. But once the disciples and the apostles died, healing died with them. That's what cessationists believe. I don't believe that. Uh, And I don't think anyone with, well, I'll be careful actually. I don't believe that. (laughs) So John Wimber was not a Christian, and then he became a Christian, but he became a Christian in a church that was led and followed the cessationist theology. So they didn't believe in any of that stuff. And so he just shares here in his first three or four minutes his experience with this church. Now you can go, Tibor, when you're ready, nice and loud.
1: When I first came uh, to Christ, I came to Christ vis-a-vis a Bible study in which Jesus Christ was presented to me not only as a, as a historical personage and as the living Christ today, but as the person by, through whom and by whom I was to receive life and operate from that day forward. I came to Christ mountain style, no holds barred, uh, uh, everything uh, given to him at one time. I knew that if I came to Christ, it was the end of me and the beginning of him. That's the way it was presented. I was to come to Jesus and to walk with him. Over the weeks and months that I studied the New Testament, I studied it with an understanding that coming to Jesus meant coming, going, giving away all that I'd ever ha- was, all that I ever hoped to be and coming to Jesus in totality and following Him for the rest of my life. As I read the New Testament, I fell in love with Jesus, didn't you? I liked Him. I liked what He was like. I liked the things He did. I liked the things He said. Didn't you like those things? I thought that stuff was hot. I liked it when he multiplied the bread. Did you like that one? Huh? How about it? Did you like that one? And the fishes, you know, the sardines, I always picture sardines. I like that stuff. I like all that stuff, you know. I liked it when he went by the fig tree and said, hmm, you know, <laughs> and it died. Can you picture him doing that? I like all that stuff. I like it. I remember last night, comfort. That's a biggie, you know. I mean, that's hot. There are not many guys doing that come forth thing, you know, telling anybody to come up from the dead. I liked all that stuff. And when I became a Christian, I thought that's what I was going to do. I spent several weeks reading the New Testament and talking with these people, and I thought, this is great. You know, I'm going to join up. I want to do this stuff. And so I remember the frustration of attending church the first few times. You know what I thought they did at church? Now, this is how stupid I was. I thought you, that people gathered at the church, had a good time together, sort of divvied up the land, and then everybody went out and healed a few and cast out a few demons and won a few people to Christ before lunch. And so the first few times I went to church, I went prepared with the idea that we're going to, you know, ha, I'm going to take Anaheim. I want to go to Anaheim. you know, the deepest, darkest, pagan Anaheim. Over there by Disneyland. That's where I want to go, because that's where I was raised. And when they didn't do it, I was disappointed. And I remember one day asking a guy about it. I said, when do we go out and do it? He said, what? I said, when do we go out and do it? He says, oh, you don't have to do it. You just have to believe it was done once. (laughs) Now that's pathetic. Isn't it? I found out over the next year or two that we cried about it. We sang about it. We preached about it, we prayed over it, we gave to it, but we never did it. We never got to go do the things that Jesus did. And I grew disillusioned in the process. Now you know, when I worked for the devil, he let me do his stuff. (laughs) Did he let you do his stuff? He let me do his stuff. But when I came to work for Jesus, they didn't want to let me do His stuff. And to tell you the truth, I joined up to do the stuff. Did you? You see, it's doing the stuff that's going to change the world. It's not knowing it was done once. It's not knowing that it's important. It's doing it that's going to change the world. Somewhere, someplace, somebody's got to start believing this book and acting on
0: it. All right. So that's John. He's a pretty cool guy. He's dead now, which is sad. Um, But I'm reading his biography at the moment, and he's he's pretty far out. And so he coined this phrase, doing the stuff, which some of you more mature, age-wise people much older than Jesus would would have heard of, like doing this stuff. And so, uh, I just want to I want to kind of put it out there. Um, as we look towards next year, as we look towards what God's calling us to do, as we're all asking the questions, "What does church look like?" You know, we're in such a weird time, right? I saw someone the other day. They said, "I used to cough to hide my farts." Now I have to fart to hide my coughs, right? Like, it's just the whole world's gone upside down. It's weird. And, um, and so I'm asking the question, like, as we go, I'm like, God, what does church look like moving forward? How do we do church? And let me tell you something. It doesn't look like jamming as many people as you can into a building on a Sunday morning to sing some songs, listen to I talk, and then go home and just carry on doing what we've always been doing. It's not going to fly anymore. It's just not. Like he said, what the world needs are people that believe what's written in the Bible and then do it. We've got to let go of our selfishness, our fear, our ignorance, our laziness, And just start doing it. And it starts in here, right? Like I've said many times, if we put up our hands and say, hey, go pray for someone that needs prayer, and you're like, oh, I don't know. If you can't pray for someone in church on a Sunday morning with their hand up saying, please pray for me, don't think for a second you're going to be able to pray for people out in the world. So it starts here. Safe place, practice, make mistakes. As I said, I'm still fleshing this all out, so don't freak out too much, but... We, we, we can't just carry on coming to church on a Sunday, singing songs, having a great time, and then going home and dealing with all the same problems that everybody else deals with the same way that they deal with it. I think one of the things that's, and I could go on for ages, so I'll wrap up here, but one of the things that I found most frustrating as a Christian is watching the way other Christians are handling the situation's of the world, we are called to handle things differently. I was reading uh, in a in a syllabus on evangelism this week, and they quoted an article from Christianity Today in 1982. It's very obscure, and uh, they were talking about how this particular region of China had been very persecuted, the Christians had been very persecuted, the church had been very persecuted, but they said, we estimate that there was around 4,000 Christians in this area in China, and then the persecution began, and in the space space of about six months, the church is now at 90,000 Christians, and so they had interviewed some of the Christians in that area, and they said, what has happened, how has The number of Christians increased by, you know, 25 times, 23 times. And they gave three reasons. The third reason at the bottom of the list was uh, Christian radio being broadcast into China. They found that really helpful. The second reason on the list was seeing the power of God move. People were seeing people healed, they were seeing people set free, they were seeing demons being cast out of people, and that. It's quite impacting. That was the second reason. But do you know what the top reason was? The top reason given for why the church had grown from 4,000 Christians to 90,000 Christians in a short space of time? They said the number one reason is the witness of the church in its suffering. They said there is something about seeing persecuted Christians go through that with joy and peace and love and grace that is so compelling to the world that it draws them in like moth to a flame. That is the number one reason that the the church in that area of China grew from 4,000 people to 90,000 people. The number one reason was the world saw how the Christians handled persecution. And they went, that is so different to how I would handle it. There is something about that person's belief that is true and genuine and authentic. There's something about their relationship with his God that I cannot deny. And so that's an encouragement for all of us. The world is looking at us. Yes, there's a lot of stuff flying around. Yes, there is the potential that we're going to have to rethink how we do church. Yes, you could argue that it's a little bit unfair. But in these times uh, when it's getting darker, our light shines all the brighter, right? We have to, we have to model that well, right? And I appreciate there's always times when we feel really snotty and we're just like, ugh. Just in those moments, don't post on Facebook, <laughs> right? Ring up a Christian friend and be like, ah, I hate this, whatever, and then talk it out with them. And then save Facebook for like, hey, God's still in control. We can still do this. Like, come on, let's, like I said on Facebook during the week, I said, who remembers when the most annoying thing about Facebook was people thinking you needed to see photos of their dinner? Like, I long for those days. I wish I could open up Facebook and just see dinner all over the place. That would be, ah, oh, so nice. Instead, I just see all these people ranting about life and the government and this and that, and vast majority of them are all Christians. Oh God, come back today and take them. That's what I'm like. Anyway, are we done? I think I think I think we're done. Yeah, we're going to get in trouble. Anyway, all right. Let me let me, let me pray for you. You yeah, pray for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, might have to delete that. Activate online afterwards. All right, it's a bit of a weird Sunday. If you're a guest with us this morning, it's not always like that. It's a bit all over the place. All right, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that you have a plan for this church. Lord, that you have a plan for every single person that calls this church home, that you have a plan for our country, that you have a plan for this planet. We thank you, God, that you are not worried, concerned, anxious, or stressed. Lord, that we have an extraordinary opportunity before us to show the world how good you are through the way that we live. And Lord, I just pray, I really pray, God, that everything you have for us, we would start to walk in. Lord, that we wouldn't miss any of it. God, give us the courage as a church and as individuals to step out, And Lord, I pray a dangerous prayer. I pray that you would make it impossible for us to stay where we are. Lord, that you would make it so uncomfortable for us to not move forward, that we have no choice but to push into you. If that's what it takes, God, for us to move towards you, then do whatever it is that you need to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, have a great Sunday. Keep an eye on your emails and we'll let you know what the deal is with things moving forward. It's so complicated. There's levels and numbers and traffic lights and colors and no one knows what's going on and things this is going to happen and then someone in Blenheim gets it and oh, now we don't know what's going on and it's, it's just crazy. All right, be, <coughs> be kind.